The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them, open them up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is where we're going to be. Uh, there are hardback black Bibles under every chair that you can use. You can open a phone or a tablet, but Philippians 2 is where we're going to spend our time. Philippians 2 in those black Bibles is on page 981, uh, but, but Philippians 2 is uh, where we're going to spend our time. We're in the second week of our Christmas uh, series uh, where we are taking a deep dive into the topic of Christology. Christology is what we are discussing. Normally, we preach like straight through books of the Bible here, right? So we did Ephesians all fall, and we will jump back into a book uh, in the new year. We're actually going to jump back into 1 Samuel and start tackling the life of David uh, this spring. But for this Christmas series, I'm doing a theological series, Okay, these three sermons are theological sermons, and the text that we're actually basing uh, these three sermons off of is not Philippians 2. It's actually Matthew chapter 1. I'll put this up. Matthew 1, a famous Christmas passage, says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, and so we are taking those three words, the, the meaning of Emmanuel, God with us, and we're using each one as a starting point to have discussions about Christology. We're covering three Christological doctrines. Uh, and so last week we took God, okay? We talked about God, and we used that to dive into the doctrine of Christ's divinity, that Jesus is divine, that, that Jesus Christ is God. Um, today, we're going to go out of order, and we're taking us, God with us, and we will examine the, the, the counterpart argument to that. Christ is divine, but also Christ now is human. We're looking at the doctrine of Christ's humanity. And then on Saturday, please do come back and spend some time with us on Christmas Eve, where we will look at with and we'll spend our whole time talking about with, the word with, and talk about the doctrine of Christ's incarnation. So Christ's divinity, Christ's humanity, and Christ's incarnation. And then once again, let me just give you my reason for preaching these three sermons. Why am I doing that this Christmas? Why, we would, why would we talk about Christ at Christmas? Hmm. Hmm. It's not just pure comedy, Okay. Because, because our interpretation of who the Son of God is will drastically impact how you see him. Who he is will drastically impact how you respond to him. And, and I said it last week, if you don't think rightly about God, you won't follow rightly after God. You have to think about him right if you want to follow him right, correctly. So we're, we're kind of doing a little brain flex. And I know this is like, some of you are really into this, okay? The theology, 
you know, CCU student here. Okay, but like, I know some, we're gonna flex our brains a little bit around these doctrines, and I hope, though, it will actually shed some light on Christ this Christmas. Now, uh, last week, we talked about Christ's divinity, okay? We talked about God uh, and his divinity and how unbelievably powerful God is. If you remember this, we talked that Jesus is creator, right? That he was at creation, that Jesus Christ, not just God the Father, the Son was a part of creation. He's the creator of all things. Additionally, he is the sustainer of all things. And we looked at some texts that said that he holds all things together by the word of his power, that Jesus holds everything together. And the third thing we said is that he is the savior. He's creator, he's sustainer, he's savior. Behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So, so Jesus is divine, but hear me, I don't even think that's the hard part to believe about Christianity. I don't actually think that's the scandalous part of the message of the gospel. See, the real scandal of Christianity is Christ's humanity. It's the scandal, okay? Uh, Here's the scandal of Christianity. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the co-eternal with the Father has always been and will always be. That guy, God the Son, put this on. The scandal of Christianity is that God the Son put on flesh, like put this, a body, on. And listen, maybe you CrossFit, all right? Maybe you CrossFit and maybe you practice like mindfulness and clean eating and you're keto and you stretch, like you're into stretching, okay? And you've done detoxes. And so like when when I say God put this on, you look at you and you're like, yeah, all right. I can see why he'd choose to do that, right? Like you look at your and you're just like, yeah, I get this. I see why. And I'm just saying, No. No, it don't matter. It don't matter how fit you are, how healthy you are, how far you can run, how much you can lift. No, we're talking about the divine, almighty son of God, eternal. And he puts on one of these. Put on flesh. He became like us. He dwelt among us. He's not a myth not a mythological figure. He is a historical person, God in the flesh. This is the doctrine of Christ's humanity, and it's hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. The reason why I say it's scandalous is because 2,000 years ago, that's exactly what it was. It was a scandal. God would, hear me, never condescend to our level. God would never voluntarily become weak. God would never become dependent on someone else. God would never, oh my goodness, die on a cross. But 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, this is Paul, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly. That means foolishness, foolishness to Gentiles. Now, this little oxymoron here uh, doesn't pack as much of a punch as it would, you know, back then. 
a crucified Christ is an oxymoron. It's two things that are opposing that we've put together. Right, you know what oxymoron, you took English class? Okay, tight slacks, that's an oxymoron. Freezer burn, okay, you follow me? Soft rock, that's an oxymoron. Government efficiency, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> Adorable cat, right? Like those are all, those are oxymorons. A, a crucified Christ, a dead God. That don't work. That don't fit together. And it says, the Greek word that's translated stumbling block, see that stumbling block, that Greek word is skandalon, where we get the word scandal. That's why I say this is scandalous business. It was scandalous that God would subject himself to such human fragility. It would be a scandal. So that's what we're going to look at today, okay? We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 and learn some more about Christ's humanity. So let's get into this together. Philippians 2, I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Follow along if you can. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, we're going to look at three aspects of this doctrine of Christ's humanity, and the first one is a big one. It's his birth. We're going to look at the birth of Christ, his birth. The text says that he was born in the likeness of men. Now, uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth, I'll just put it out there, is a big deal. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Um, but honestly, I don't know that many Christians can articulate why it's a big deal. All right, so like I asked several people this week, hey, tell me why the virgin birth is actually important. Okay, and while they almost all agreed that this is important, they were, had, had difficulty, difficulty explaining why. Like, why is this a big deal? Now, this doctrine, the virgin birth, is actually in all of our major Christian creeds. Okay, creeds are, are, are confessional uh, statements that Christians historically have ascribed to as kind of the essentials of Christian doctrine. So like the Apostles' Creed, you may have grown up in a church tradition that they would recite the creed. Okay, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So it's a creed and it confesses the virgin birth. Maybe you don't trust the Apostles' Creed for some bizarre reason. How about the Nicene Creed, you ask? Well, good thing I have that right here, okay? The Nicene Creed says, For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So the virgin birth is a big Deal. There are some doctrines that are non-essentials. We would say these are not essentials, as in we can agree to disagree on how these things work. As Christians, we can just see things differently and kind of still be in the club, right? They're non-essentials. There's lots of open-handed non-essentials, but then there are doctrines that are deemed essentials of the Christian faith. They're in the creeds. They're in our creeds. And we would say that to believe differently than the creeds 
would amount to a word we call heresy. And I don't throw that word around lightly. So why is the virgin birth essential? Why is this creedal doctrine? Well, let me give us two reasons. Uh, First, first, the virgin birth made possible the unity of full deity and full humanity in one person. That's what the virgin birth does. The virgin birth made possible that Jesus Christ can be both fully divine, like we talked about last week, and fully human, which is what we're talking about this week. The great word, if you want to write this down, the great kind of theological term for that doctrine of fully God and fully human is the word hypostatic union. Drop that at your Christmas party this week, okay? You'll be real cool, real cool, okay? But like, that's what this is. It's a union of these two things. Soren Kierkegaard, the great philosopher, called this doctrine the ultimate paradox. This is the ultimate paradox. And the virgin birth is the means that God uses to send his son into the world. Now, if you've thought about this, maybe you haven't, I have, uh, he could have chose it to, do, to do it any other way. Like God could have chosen to send Jesus in a different way, but no other way would, would clearly unite humanity and deity in the same way. No other way, okay? So like God could have, if you think about this, he could have created Jesus up in heaven with a complete formed human body and then just like transports, like send him down into earth without any earthly parents or without any growing up or childhood. Like you could have just like, tra- like teleported that dude, right, floating him down to us, right? He could have done that. That certainly actually would have uh, created fewer doubts about his divinity, you just watch him float down and be like, that must be a God, right? Like that's, it would have certainly done that, but it would have been really hard, maybe impossible for us to see that guy as human. We'd be like, nah, that, there's no way. There's no way. Alternatively, God could have let Jesus be born completely natural, like have two natural human parents and then just like divinely transmit his essence into the baby in utero. Right, like let, 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 let Joseph play in this, this story a little bit more. He could have been a part of this. But then it would have brought his divinity into question if he was not immaculately conceived. So one reason why the virgin birth is essential is because it shows us that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. But then that leads to what I think is a helpful second reason why the virgin birth is necessary. See, I think the virgin birth also shows us that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation can never come through human effort. It it must be the work of God himself. And I think the virgin birth mirrors that for us. The virgin birth, hear me, is essential to our salvation. Jesus can only be the savior. He can only be the one who saves people from their sins if the virgin conception is true. I'll show you how it works, okay? Um, We saw last week that Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. That means he's God. If he is God, then he is infinitely holy, 
infinitely just, perfect justice. He, he has these character traits if he is God. But now we find out that Jesus is also natural. He is also human. Therefore, as a human being, he can be tempted. He can be hurt. And then ultimately he can die. So, so, so Jesus is God and thus he is infinitely holy. And that would mean that he is able to bear the weight of atonement, of payment for sin. Every single sin that has ever been committed by ever, every human being in the entire history of the world can be thrust upon his shoulders and he can bear that weight because he is divine. Problem is he can't die. Because God's can't die. God can't die. Enter Jesus' humanity. Jesus is a man, so he can die. And what we have in Jesus is a uniquely qualified person to identify with us and bear our weight as the sacrifice for us. Son of God and son of man. So I know this is dense theology, okay? But this is of the utmost importance. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and no other option would have worked. Only God and man in one being could be the savior of the world. This is fundamental for those of us who call Jesus our Lord and savior. He is immaculately conceived, the virgin birth. So that's the first thing, okay? But then the text goes on. The text goes on. Uh, look, look again at verse seven, Philippians two, verse seven. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by both becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want to point out that in the text, it says that by becoming man, Jesus emptied himself. As in, when he became human, when he came to this earth, he, he was full like full, and now he is emptying himself. And it's my second point about Christ's humanity. Uh, it's his limits. His birth, being fully human, led to some limits to him being emptied of some things. Now, we need to do some work on this, but because in Jesus Christ, we have a full human being who empties himself of some of his divine benefits while on this planet. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus is fully God, and yet he limits that godness for the 33 years that he lives on this earth. He has limitations while on earth. Three that I thought of. First, his body. Right? We already talked about this, that he put on one of these. He put on flesh, and thus he experienced the things that we experience as humans with bodies. So Jesus grew up through childhood and into adulthood. That means Jesus went through puberty. He did. Jesus got tired. We have scriptural references of that. Jesus got thirsty, Jesus got hungry, and then ultimately Jesus did succumb to death. He died, and we'll cover this when we get to Easter, Good Friday and Easter, but the culmination of his limits 
is what we see when he dies on the cross. His human body that he takes on, the flesh that he took on, ceased to have life in it and ceased to function just as each one of our bodies will one day. So Jesus temporarily emptied himself of some of the divine benefits of his godness. This also means that if you know uh, theology and you know kind of the, the omnis of God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience, this actually, the fact that Jesus had a physical body means that he temporarily emptied himself of his omnipresence. Okay, Jesus was unable to be everywhere at all times, like we would say God is. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. Jesus was in one place, embodied on earth at one time. He shed some of that. He emptied himself of some of that while he was on earth. So his body is one aspect of his limits. The second aspect of his limits is his mind. Jesus had a human mind. It wasn't like baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and he knows everything. He did not have a divine mind. In fact, he had a human mind and went through the learning process that every human child does. Jesus grew up. He wasn't just born with a fully formed mind. He learned how to eat. He learned how to talk. He learned how to read and write. He learned how to obey his parents. Remember that story where he gets lost? He learns how to obey his parents, his earthly parents. He could have said to Joseph, he's the first one who could have said, you're not my real dad. <laughs> and he didn't. A couple of scriptures to show evidence of this. Luke chapter two says of the boy Jesus, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's a weird one for me. I'll get it all. Like he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with man, but with God? Like Jesus grew up into the son of God. Like he, I don't know exactly what that means, but he grew. Jesus grew. Additionally, not only did he grow up, he didn't even know everything once he was fully grown. Here we have scriptural evidence of this. Uh, Mark chapter 13, he gave up some of his omniscience, some of his all-knowingness, Mark 13, but concerning that day or that hour, he's talking about the end of all things, the end of time, concerning that day, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. These are his limits. So he didn't only limit himself by having a frail human body, okay? He didn't only limit himself by having a mind that needed development and growth. Finally, we see his limits when it comes to his emotions. He had emotional feelings. He felt all the feels, is how the kids are saying it these days, right? <laughs> Jesus experienced the full spectrum of emotions that human beings experience, just a few that I found in the text, okay? Uh, he felt anxiety. Do you know that? John chapter 12. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus in the garden. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this 
hour. That word in Greek for troubled is often translated anxious. My soul is anxious. My soul is troubled. He's talking about the crucifixion. You'd be a little anxious about that too. But he's troubled by it. Jesus also experienced sorrow again in the garden in Matthew 26. Then he says to his friends, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. First of all, it says that his soul is sorrowful, so he knows what's going to happen. Like he knows he's going to be resurrected. That's why he's here. And yet he's still sorrowful. But the other thing that just blew my mind is that he has a soul. I never thought about that until this week. So I don't know what that means. I didn't even think about that very much, but it'll make your brain hurt. He, he was anxious, he was sorrowful, and then finally he even experienced loss and mourning, and we see this when his friend Lazarus dies, and John 11, it says Jesus wept, everybody's favorite verse to memorize. Uh, you can memorize this before the end of the year, y'all, okay? <laughs> but have you ever thought that that point, Jesus knew that he could go and raise Lazarus from the tomb? Have you thought that it's a bit strange that he actually wept. Like, even though he knew the alternative was about to happen, I just think this is Jesus experiencing deep sorrow and mourning and loss. Y'all, these are his limits. The humanity of Jesus says that the most powerful God in the, world, in the universe, the God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the most powerful God appears to be powerless, empties himself of some of that stuff. So his birth, his limits, let me do one more, okay? There's one more aspect of his divinity I want to address, and then we'll move to some application. It gets a little bit more applicable here. Uh, Look again at verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So his virgin birth is necessary. Necessary. His human limits are necessary. But then finally, we need to engage with the question of his nature. His birth, his limits, but his nature. Specifically, Jesus is this guy who lives a life and goes to the cross. But what was it about him that made his death something that would evoke God the Father to just say, hey, I'm going to exalt this guy? I'm going to exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above all others and to have every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Like, what is it about Jesus that makes him different? Well, the New Testament clearly affirms that Jesus was fully human, just like you and I. But it also affirms that Jesus was crucially different in one important respect. See, he was without sin. He never committed a sin during his lifetime. His nature is that he was sinless. And that makes him different. 
right? Anybody else here have that sinless nature? No? Okay, good. Because I'll give you my face mic, okay? But, but listen, some are going to object to this idea that Jesus was sinless. They'd actually say that Jesus being sinless is what points to him not being fully human because if Jesus did not sin, he can't be human because all humans sin. So certainly he was not the same as us. But that fails to recognize that, that human beings today are in an abnormal situation. Let me explain. Uh, when Adam and Eve were first created, they were placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden, before they sinned. They were fully human before sin entered into the equation. But now, post-Genesis 3, all of us are post-sin entering the equation. And now, we're in the abnormal situation. The norm, the creative norm of God to humans was in the garden. And everything after that has been abnormal. Sinfulness was not originally part of our nature. This again is what, where the, the virgin birth can come into play to help explain this a little bit, okay? The virgin birth also makes possible that Christ's true humanity was full and he did not inherit the sin that we all inherit, so all of us humans, we inherit sin. We call that original sin through our first father, Adam. Okay, Romans chapter five, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into every man, that's all of us. That's inherited sin. That's original sin. That's why David would say, I was conceived in iniquity. He wasn't sinning in the womb. It was in sin that it, he got his sin from his father. But Jesus did not descend from the line of Adam in the same way that we do. Because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. This helps to understand why the legal guilt and moral corruption which belongs to all human beings did not belong to Jesus Christ. It's helpful to think this way, okay? Jesus did not fully descend from Adam because he had no earthly father. And that break in the line of descent is how theologians believe the, was the method that God used to bring that about, that he's fully human and yet does not share that inherited sin and thus is the only man post-sin who could exist in the Garden of Eden. His nature is he was without sin. Now we have evidence all through the New Testament. There are literally zero accounts of Jesus in any gospel. Um, there are zero accounts of him sinning in all four Gospels, and then actually all through the New Testament, we find the same affirmation. So here we go. Let's go through some scriptures. John 8, this is Jesus. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And 1 John chapter 3 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. I, why, why am I bringing all the, why am I hitting you with all these scriptures? That was every single major New Testament author. This is no isolated doctrine hidden away, tucked away in some random book. This is all through the New Testament. Jesus' nature was different than ours. He's sinless. So this is the doctrine of Christ's humanity, his his birth, his limits, and his nature. Now, I, I think, I hope you can see why this doctrine is important. I hope you can see why this is important. Um, but let's also answer another question. It might be interesting. It might be important. You might be geeking out a little bit on this, or you might be exa- exhausted and tired and like, why did I even come to church today? Okay? So let's answer this question. How is this applicable to me? Like this doctrine is not in isolation. Like how would this actually apply in my life? Well, there are plenty of reasons, but let me give you one. Just one application point today. Because Jesus is fully human, he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with you. The humanity of Christ is where the power and justice of the divine meets the absolute love and mercy of God, and they come together. So what you get in the humanity of Jesus is a God who can relate to us without compromising his justice, and he can, without compromising his holiness and his justice and even his divine wrath, he can enter into that with mercy and acceptance and grace. Jesus alone is the one who speaks to us with both the truth of the divine God. He knows what, how things should be, the truth of the divine God and the grace of a true human. He knows how things really are. He knows how things should be and he knows how things actually are. And he can speak into that uniquely. And listen, we need both. Really, you need both. You need truth and grace. You need both. Uh, Our culture loves the, the message of grace and acceptance and care and love and doesn't love truth. But listen, you need both. Truth, though, without grace, if you're just beating people with truth, truth is fundamentalism. Truth without grace is legalism. It's it's moralism. It's judgmentalism. It's I know better than you. It's Pharisaism. It's truth without grace. But then listen, the opposite. Grace without truth is sentimentality. Grace without truth is nostalgia. It's wishful thinking. It's Hallmark movies, y'all. Grace without truth, it's, it's, it's hollow and it's frail and it's fragile. 
so my mama uh, had, had, has cancer. Um, when she got cancer, um, I just tell you, we didn't want to go to an oncologist who would just tell us grace. Like, f- like flowery grace. Like, oh, don't worry. <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. Like, we don't want to sit with the oncologist and he's like, hey, it's stage four, but you're doing okay. Like, you're, you're okay. Why don't you just go home and just like start eating better and drink some tea and rest and you're going to be fine. No, listen, when, when, when mom got the cancer diagnosis, we wanted a doctor who spoke truth. We wanted him to tell us the truth. No matter how hard it was for us to hear, we needed the truth so we could figure out what we needed to do to try and battle this thing. And the best of both worlds is when he speaks truth and he's actually nice about it. He's not a jerk. You don't want just truth. You don't want just grace. You want them together. And the same is true for God. Listen to me. You don't want a God who only brings grace. You really don't want a God who only brings grace and no truth. You don't want a God who is always affirming of every choice you make. That's the grace without truth, God. You don't want that God. Listen, if your God never disagrees with you, you are likely worshiping yourself. He must bring truth, but he must bring grace. You don't need a God who says that your sins are okay. The true God will not tell you that your sins aren't a big deal, that they're not that bad, that you're just fine, don't worry about it, because the Bible will tell us that your sins are a huge deal. Your sins are a huge deal. Sin is what brought the curse on the earth. That's what started this whole thing. Sin has sent people to hell, to eternal separation from God the Father. Sin is what ultimately cost Jesus his life. And, and, and we are sinners. And if your God doesn't tell you that, he's not being truthful with you. We are sinners, but we need a God who can deal with us in that state. Jesus can do both. He can do grace and truth because, listen, he's man and he's been there, but he's God and he knows what's best. He can do grace and truth. So he speaks truth with tenderness. That's how Jesus speaks. He suffered our loneliness. He suffered our pain. He suffered our abandonment. And now he hears us with sympathy. Every time you pray, think about this. Every time you pray, You pray to a God who intimately knows exactly what it's like to be you. Not in some like theoretical sense, but he knows it because he lived it. And so, gosh, I, I, uh, I use this illustration often. I love it. Um, and I'll use it again, okay? But uh, it was reinforced for me this week, this illustration, because uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you saw that my daughter, Harper, was in the ER, okay? So... She got that stomach bug that my wife had that I haven't had yet, okay? But she got that, that thing, and she started vomiting. And, well, it was, she made a lot of deposits, okay? Was not putting much back in. Uh, and so we were like, she, we, we had to take her to the hospital, to the emergency room for dehydration, okay? And now she's, uh, now that she's a little older, she actually is a champ. Like, I was sitting in the emergency room thinking, I feel awful for all these parents, but my daughter is just just, you know, quietly puking next to me, right? So like, uh, she, was, she was a delight in the ER, okay? But when she was younger, that's not how it worked. 
Like when she was younger, it was a different experience. And the, immediately the, the, the illustration, the, the memory came to me as I'm sitting in the ER with my daughter puking next to me of when I took her for her three-year-old checkup. And I've told you about this. Her pediatrician is a, a gal named Dr. Kelly. Okay, Dr. Kelly comes in. And, and listen, at this point, Harper loves Dr. Kelly. At three, she loved Dr. Kelly because we had a toy uh, doctor's kit for Harper and, and she would play Dr. Kelly. She would like, we'd play, like I'd be the patient and she would be Dr. Kelly. And just so you know, that's the best game ever. Like all the parents know exactly that that is the best game because I laid on the floor and closed my eyes and sometimes even fell asleep a little bit, okay? And she would do a checkup on me. It's like a daddy break, okay? This is a, a parent hack. Play doctor, okay? So it's just truth. I'm just spitting truth here. This is, this is for, especially if you don't have kids, like know and learn the first toy is a doctor's kid, okay? So, so Harper loves Dr. Kelly. Dr. Kelly comes in, three-year-old checkup. She does the whole checkup on Harper. Everything's looking good. It's all going smooth until the very end of the appointment, when Dr. Kelly puts on a mask or takes off a mask, I'm not sure exactly what, but Dr. Kelly says, well, that's it, Harper, you're looking great. Except we need to give you two booster shots. And at this point, Harper had seen enough episodes of Doc McStuffins to like know what a shot was and the fun ended, right? The fun was over and she freaked out. She flipped out in the, the room. And so here's what I had to do. Here's what I had to do. I had to like first block the door because she was trying to get out. I had to grab my little girl and I had to set her on my lap and her arms were punching and her legs were kicking. And so I had to put one arm around her arms to keep them from punching Dr. Kelly. And, and then I take my other arm and lay it across her legs to keep her from kicking Dr. Kelly. And I have to overpower her. Like I have to overpower her with my strength to hold her in place so that Dr. Kelly can give her the shots, which isn't such a big deal because she was three. I could totally take her, okay? So I'm overpowering her and Dr. Kelly goes into three-year-old Kevorkian mode and starts bringing out the needles and stuff. And I remember distinctly Harper turned, that's a great joke that you'll get later, okay? Um, look up Dr. Kevorkian. Uh, uh, not right now, okay? And while I'm holding there, I, I distinctly remember her turning and looking at me and having these tears in her eyes and just saying through sobs, Daddy, Daddy, why? Daddy, Daddy, no, Daddy, stop. And listen, in that moment, all the truth that I can muster won't help. Any truth I can muster about vaccines, this was before COVID, okay? So they, they, they were all trustworthy at that point. But any, any truth I can muster about vaccines at that point, it wouldn't matter. It would not matter. Listen, there's a poster in our doctor's office, in the pediatrician office, with a bunch of pictures of sick and dying kids with all the different diseases that these vaccines, and I, I, I pointed at it. I'm like, sweetie, diphtheria? This is what you, 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 you want lockjaw? Like that's what this thing is protect. But, and that's a creepy poster in the doctor's office, guys. But, but I, I could have I reasoned my mouth off with her. But the truth didn't matter at that moment. The truth didn't matter at that moment. In that moment, she needed daddy. She just needed me to hold her. 
to rock her and to sympathize with her. Because hear me, I remember getting shots as a boy. And I remember being scared. And I remember freaking out and screaming way louder than I should have. And now as a dad, I also know the truth. She needs those shots. But she also has a dad who loves her and can sympathize with her in this. Guys, Jesus sympathizes with us. He can sympathize with us because he was us. God with us. This is the doctrine of Christ's humanity. And as we close, I'm, this paired, like Christ's humanity paired with what we talked about last week in Christ's divinity, like those two things coming together makes Christmas pack a punch that I just think puts little baby Jesus with his rosy red cheeks and his little swaddling clothes and the manger and the animals munching on the hay around him. Like that, that picture, it just puts that to shame. It just, it just throws that little sentimental manger scene out the window and it can't stand up to it because this baby, this person is both God and man. So professor and scholar N.T. Wright says this. I love this quote. Let me read this. He says, how can you live with a terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? that the fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst. See, Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, total nonsense. Most people, unable to cope with either of those two things, are condemned to live in the shallow world in between. Oh, that's, that's Jesus. Son of God, son of man, divine, human, just, merciful, truth and grace. This is who you need. I just wonder if you know him this way. I wonder if you know this Jesus, the hurricane become human. The fire become flesh. Life itself walking into our midst. Do you know that guy? Because he's what you need. Listen, if you don't know him this way, you, you just, you can. That's what's on the table at Christmas, y'all. Not sentimentality and like movies and cookies. Yeah, great, okay, yes and amen. But this is what's on the table. Jesus, the Christ. The offer's on the table. All you need to do is surrender to it. I said last week, surrender all you are to all he is. Knowing Jesus this way is what will deepen your faith and relationship with him and it will keep you out of that shallow world that's in between.
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Please, please come, come on Saturday. We'll spend the whole time talking about with and it's where all this stuff comes together. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, we bless you. What a magnificent passage in Philippians 2. What a, what a beautiful outpouring of your grace that we get through your servant Paul's pen. And thank you, Father, for the great and deep doctrine that is the person of Christ. Both his divinity, yes, but also his humanity. What a scandal. God, that you would condescend, that you would come down, that you would shed your glory, that you would set aside and empty yourself for a season that you might be able to genuinely know what we know and experience what we experience and feel what we feel, but also to succeed in every area that we fail all the way up to your death. Lord, for men and women in here who don't don't really know that Jesus. God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you're drawing them to you, that you're wooing them to you, and that they would lay their yes down and surrender to you this season. And say, I just, they would pray in their own heart right now, I surrender to you, Jesus. That's different than sentimental Christmas. That's meat on the bone, real deal Christmas. And so God, thank you for showing us this version of Jesus, this side of Jesus. I pray it changes us in it and, and that it leads us to adore him all the more. So Lord, we love you. We bless you, Father, and we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.